Well, um, it'll come as no surprise to you that the internet, though really wonderful in so many ways, has also brought us some things that are, you might say, not so good. Um, I could think of several things, like cat videos. Uh, I know it's controversial already. You're already, you're already concerned. I'm not listening to anything you have to say from here on out. Um, or planking, if you remember planking, that was a, a trend for, do you remember planking, anybody? I would like to demonstrate for you now. I'm not going to do that. Or, um, I don't know, there's other things that happen, like the mannequin challenge more recently. Or have you seen the new one, like the Andy's Room challenge, where everybody acts like toys in Toy Story, so they all just drop on the floor immediately, and like all the toys used to do? You're not impressed. Um, or, I don't know, um, we have, I think, the internet, we have to thank uh, the dab for, we can thank the internet for that, thank you for that, and, and every kid everywhere dabbing with fidget spinners in their hands, like it's just kind of what this generation has become. Um, all of those things, right? And of course, you know, there are lots of things that you'd say, oh, it's, it's much worse than that, and it's very true. You could point to vitriol that spews out of us on Facebook and things like that, and, and many other things. But there are also moments where the internet shows us some really good things. Like, and, and whenever it happens, whenever you see something great on the internet, but something that somebody does, they'll say something like this. People will post, they'll say, um, this person has restored my faith in humanity. Have you seen those posts? Faith in humanity, restored, because somebody did something kind. I actually have, some, uh, I have some, some examples of this today. I want you to take a look at them. Like this lady right here. It's gonna be a little hard for you to tell, but you see this series of pictures where this woman, she's, she's got this, there's a homeless man right there in the middle of a rainstorm. And so she grabs an umbrella and she brings it over to him and she covers him and she takes care of him. If you can see it, he's even on wheels. He can't walk. He's just got a little tray full of wheels and he's, he's just pushing himself along. And she walked with him and cared for him. And people posted and said, faith in humanity restored. I like this one a lot. This family, this little boy, he had to have an insulin pump. And so he got it installed, of course. And his parents, they went, his, they got, went and got tattoos of insulin pumps on their stomachs so that he would never have to feel like he was alone. Faith in humanity restored. There's another one. Uh, this, this young man, this young man who was born with Down syndrome, and he was the equipment manager for this soccer team for six years. And there's his dream to play. And one night the coach said, hey, I want you to get ready because you're going in. And he played that young man and he had the game of his life and the evening of his life as his teammates and friends celebrated him. Faith in humanity restored. Or this one. I really like this one. Just a tourist in Rio de Janeiro finding a homeless person on the street and decided I'm going to give you the shoes off of my feet to just ease your burden a little bit more. Faith in humanity restored. This guy here. He rides a subway because he's got a bag full of bagels and he takes them down to New York City and he just passes them out to people who don't have any food. They all call him Bagel Jesus. <laughs> Bread of life, bagel of life. I don't know, I could get there, but, but it's an incredible story. And then the last one, I love this. this, this these guys, they're window washers. You may have seen this. And they decided they were, gonna, they were gonna wash the windows at a children's hospital and kids who were stuck in their beds. And so they dressed up as Spider-Man, Superman. Superman's wearing a mask, maybe that's somebody else. But, or he just doesn't know what Superman is. <laughs> Batman and Captain America down there. Imagine being a little kid in your bed, just stuck there and seeing Spider-Man come and washing your windows. Be incredible. You might think he lost his job, but he, he, was, <laughs> he was really bad at it somewhere. Incredible thing, and faith in humanity was restored. What is this that happens? What is that? Then we see something, we see this spark. I think I know what it is. 
Because I don't think it's so much about humanity. I think what it really is, it's what people are seeing is, they're seeing people, regardless of if they're followers of Jesus or not, they're seeing people who connect with what God wants to do in the earth. They see a little glimmer of the gospel in these people. They see a little bit of a glimmer of justice happening, of rights being made, of wrongs being corrected. And they catch a glimpse of it and they think, oh, faith in humanity is restored. But it doesn't come from humanity. It comes from him. And I think that happens over and over and over again. It's that thing that I kind of want to talk about today. We've been camped out in this series called Open Your Eyes. We've been talking about this idea. And we've been reading through Isaiah chapter 58. And I want to encourage you to read it. I'm not going to take the time to read it here today. It's very lengthy. But one more time this afternoon, would you go? And maybe in the coming weeks, would you take a few moments here and there to read it? We've read Isaiah 58, 1 through 14 in the message version. I'll read you one little verse out of verse 12. After there's been so many corrective statements and so many things that God wants to tell us, he said, you will use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate. Make the community livable again. And so several weeks ago, we started talking about this idea and how we have a tendency in the West to kind of reduce the gospel down to going to heaven after you die. We've kind of reduced it down to the gospel means a get out of hell card for me personally. And I'm really grateful for that. And it's important, but it's really easy for us to make the gospel all about me, me, what I can get, what I can receive. But when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he said to them in Matthew chapter six, nine through 10, he said, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom of God that he talks about, it's not something that was meant just for the future. It's not meant just for heaven. It's not meant for us just to have a place that we can go one day when we die. It's for change in our world now, here, today, in families, in classrooms, in workplaces. The gospel or the good news is about making what's up there come down here. Making what's up there come down here. This is what the gospel is. The kingdom of God is not a way for us to leave the world. It is in fact the way for us to redeem the world that we live in. And every one of us, you, me, all of us, we have access to that kingdom. Regular, ordinary weirdos like us have access to participate in that kingdom. So when you think about it, this chapter in Isaiah 58, if you read it, it really is pretty radical because what it does is it challenges all the areas of our lives. It challenges us in every way that we live our lives. And the reality is, I think, this is exactly what our world is in need of today. These are the kinds of people, the kinds of people that you read about in Isaiah 58, the kind of people, Isaiah 58 people that will obey what he's saying to us there. That's what our world is in need of. That's what they, in fact, I think are longing for. The world doesn't need more people that are living by the status quo. The world certainly doesn't need more religious people. The world needs more Isaiah 58 kind of people. That's why you need to read it again later today. There's a popular author, Dallas Willard, in, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he said, the world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt, but this is an age for spiritual heroes. I like that for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. And I think that's been the case. 
I think that's happened a lot. I think really this is one of the problems that we have as the people of God. There's a tendency for us to drift away from the bold vision that God has given us into some other thing that we create on our own. There's a tendency for us to drift away from God's vision and replace it with a much safer, more tame version of our own design. Uh, I think this happens a lot. Like, we'll hear, oh, you need to love your neighbor. And we think, oh, I do. I love my neighbor. I went on a missions trip and I loved those neighbors for a whole week and it was really good. Meanwhile, there's a neighbor next door that you don't know at all, that you've never met, and really that you secretly kind of despise because he's building a garden in his side lawn, which is actually your front lawn. And you're like, what are you doing? That should go behind your house. You're making every, I'm sorry, is this getting too personal? <laughs> that might be happening at my house. There's other things that we hear. We hear like, love your enemy. And we think, well, I do. He's still breathing, isn't he? <laughs> we hear go into all the world and make disciples. And we think, well, I do, I, I'm doing that. I go to a group. I've been to supper for six, two times. Like I did that. I'm making that happen. Isaiah chapter one tells us, uh, God tells us what he really thinks about when we do things like this. Isaiah chapter one, verses 10 through 17, in the message version, it says, listen to my message, you Sodom schooled leaders. Ow. Receive God's revelation, you Gomorrah schooled people. Why this frenzy of sacrifices? God's asking, don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams and plump grain fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs, and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship, quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 and I can't stand one more. <laughs> meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion. Well, you go right on sinning. Ah, oh, there it is. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up, clean up your act, sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong, learn to do good, work for justice, help the down and out, stand up for the homeless, go to bat for the defenseless. Welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> do you hear what he's saying in those verses though? He's saying that he's sick of people and churches who just go through the religious motions with no real change or transformation or eyes for other people. He's tired of seeing a shiny veneer of faith on us with no real depth of commitment to him or to his people or to people. So if our faith is just kind of a Sunday, I go to church every now and then kind of a faith, then the truth is it really is just empty religion. Like if that's all it is, if I just come and sit in a seat every two, three, four, five, six weeks, it's really just empty religion. And actually, according to these verses, I think it's a religion that God despises. It's strong language, everybody. You're already feeling it just like I am. But he's not talking to people out there. He's talking to us. He's talking to religious people, people like us. Look again at verse 14 through 15. He says, meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. Check that out. 
God said he's so, he's so angry about this that he's not even listening to the prayers. He won't be paying attention to our worship rituals. Look, everybody, one of the highest and best ways of expressing our love for God is not what we do here on a Sunday morning or in a group or anywhere else. It's by demonstrating his love tangibly to the people around us. The Apostle James will say it this way in James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I love it in the message version. He says, anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their, in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. It's our faith put into action that actually shows and proves the, the authenticity of our faith. But I think for too long, the church has put so much emphasis simply on the things that you're not supposed to do. Don't do this don't do that, don't say this, don't do that, don't be this, don't be that. And, and it is important, but it's why I grew up hearing things like this. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. <laughs> I'm not kidding, I heard that growing up. I didn't date a lot of girls growing up. Uh, or this one uh, that was really popular in our family, lips that touch wine will never touch mine. Again, not a lot of dates for me when I was younger, but um, thank God for his grace and bringing me my wife. Um, here in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, it says, the acts of the sinful nature, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You don't have to be a Christian very long before you start hearing what you're not supposed to do. And obviously it's really important. Like we have to learn about this. We have to know and discern and understand from the scriptures. We have to understand what's destructive, what's contrary behavior to what God has called us to do. If we're to live the lives that he's called us to live. But I think it's so easy for all of us, Christians and churches, to just focus on this list of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this. And our faith essentially becomes sin management. Like that's all we're doing. We're just managing sin. We're trying to stay away from sin as best we can. And that becomes the extent of our faith. When God has called you to so much more than that. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could manage your sin. He died so that it could be eradicated. It could be forgiven. It could be tossed away. It could be gone. He died so that you could be cleansed and free. But I think it's our zeal. Right? We're zealous. It's our zeal to condemn sins that often cause us to be viewed as judgmental or intolerant in the world that we live in. So as a result, I think we tend to be defined more by what we're against than what we're for. People know the church because of what we stand against instead of what we're for or who we're for. And everybody, this has to change. If we're gonna accomplish the things that God has called us to accomplish in our world, that thing has to change. The defining trait of our church and of our lives can't be that stuff that we're against has to become what we are for and who we are for. When I look at history, one of the most troubling things is that it seems like the church sometimes has a, a poor track record of being on the wrong side of some of these social issues of the day. 
when if the church is, is really indeed called to be a revolutionary kind of institution, where we are called to help expand the kingdom of God here on the earth, where we're called to promote justice, where we're called to lift up the sanctity of human life, to fight for the underdog, to challenge the prevailing value systems of our world. If that's what the church is for, it seems to me that we should really be out in the front of all of the social issues and not bringing up the rear. But when you look historically, you see it time and time again. Like we haven't always done a good job at this. You know, you look back and you think about TV shows. You remember when TV shows were kind of dominated by cowboys and Indians? That was the big thing. And it was just widely accepted that the cowboys were the good guys and the Indians were the bad guys automatically. And everyone just kind of accepted this. That's just the way it was. It's really only been in recent years. There's been kind of a recognition that what white men did was really amounts to a genocide for the Native American people. But for the most part, Christian settlers and churches that moved in, either they participated in that marginalization of Native, Native Americans, or at the least they turned a blind eye to their neighbors and to our own government. Slavery, I think, is another dark spot on the church. Another example of blindness. And please hear me. I am not, I am not an opponent of the church. I am not a basher of the church. I love the bride of Christ. I am a proponent. I have given my life to it. And so I want you to hear that today. But I think we have to take a look at this because I think you see another example of blindness in slavery. Again, for the most part, the church didn't say or do much. And in some instances was really one of the main proponents for the continuation of the slave trade. There's this guy, Reverend James H. Thornwell. He's a Southern pastor. And he wrote in an 1850 editorial in the New York Herald, those who supported the abolition of slavery were atheists socialists, communists, and republicans. If all races, <laughs> I thought we could breeze over that one, no. Um, if all races, sexes, and colors are put upon a footing of equality, these actions will cause the devil and his angels to be jubilant. Unbelievable words from a minister. I remember being in South Africa about 1995 not that long after apartheid had ended. And I stayed in the home of a pastor. It was a bunch of college kids and we were doing music in South Africa and I stayed in the home of this pastor and we were just sitting in the living room talking, talking about things, talking about the, the country, talking about Southern gospel music. I don't know why I didn't want to talk about that, but he wanted to. And we were talking about this and, and this, idea, this, this, this idea of race came up and he started to talk about apartheid and he began to talk about different ethnicities than his in such a demeaning and horrible and ugly way. And I was sitting in this living room as a young college kid, just shocked and didn't know what to say. I had no way to help him realize, you need to shut up. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was shocking to me. And of course, those things still continue on today. If you fast forward to the 1950s and the 60s, uh, the civil rights movement, this again, it's another kind of sad chapter for the American church, really in the North and the South. Listen to this from Martin Luther King Jr. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he, he spoke directly about his disappointment with the church. He says, let me take note of my other major disappointments. I've been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. The church is full of people after all, you know? So there's gonna be stuff that's hard. Church would be awesome if there were no people. <laughs> 
I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. When I was suddenly catapulted into leadership of the bus protests in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church, felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leader. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. Do you hear those words? More cautious than courageous. That struck me over and over this week. More cautious than courageous. Silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. I read those powerful words and I wonder, is this still true of the church today? And more appropriately, is this true of me? Do I have some of this in me? He continues on to conclude that the church has lost its voice for justice. A church like that has lost its relevance in the world. He says, the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. I've met a bunch of those kids too. So have you. Some of you are those kids in the room today. And the reason that we're pausing to talk about it, the reason that we're bringing it to the forefront, even though it's uncomfortable, and frankly, I don't like it. But the reason we're doing it is because we don't have to be that. <laughs> the goal here is that Jesus would open our eyes and cause us to live a different way than what we're reading here. How's this happen? Were we just frogs in the kettle of the culture? Like, we just, did we just sit in it and it was just kind of the slow boil and we just didn't really pay attention to it? Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter seven. He's challenging the Pharisees, another group of people, by the way, who clearly missed it. He says in Mark seven, six through eight, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. It's interesting, isn't it? I think this is kind of how it happens. A lot of times we hold on to the traditions of men. I think we struggle with it. When we're called to challenge our culture instead of being absorbed by it, we kind of sit back on the way that it is. And we say, well, it's just the way that the world is. I can't really do much about it. And we say, this is just the way the church has been run. I can't really do anything with it. Or that's the way my grandparents were and that's the way my parents were. It's just the way that I was raised. That's what my pastor used to preach. That's the way that I am. There's not much that I can do about it. Or we just say, this is just the system, man. This is just how the world works. And it makes me wonder, what are the injustices in our world right now that we aren't seeing? When are we being absorbed into it, into the prevailing winds of our culture? And then... How can we avoid the same mistakes the church has made in the past? I want to be clear that I'm not pushing really on any certain agenda. 
I want to be clear that I'm, I'm not aiming, I'm not taking aim at especially any of the, the really super politically charged issues of our day. I'm thinking in the terms of people. I'm thinking in the terms of widows. I'm thinking in the terms of single moms and single dads. I'm thinking in the terms of kids in foster care that need people to come alongside them and help them. How many of you are familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous? Heard of it. You know what happens, right? You go into the thing and here's what happens. You sit in the meeting and you have to say something like, hello, my name is Brent. I do not feel welcomed by you at all, but <laughs> hello, my name is Brent uh, and I'm an alcoholic, right? And the reason that they're doing that is that they want to force the person to acknowledge the failure. They want, the, they want them to say, I, I, I've messed up. I, I, I want to get this out there. I, I've had problems and I need it to come out and stop making excuses for it. Can I just suggest to you that here today in this moment as a family, that we just stop making excuses about all of these things. And we just admit, yeah, we've missed it sometimes, but we as the church want to rise up and participate with what God is doing in the world and not do this again. And let God open our eyes to help us with our culture blindness. All of us are susceptible to it. We all get pulled back by the prevailing culture and it's really easy for us just to live our lives blind. It's so much easier than looking at it in the face. Jesus said in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and I would heal them. He's talking about people who didn't have a clue. He's talking about people who were blind and they needed God to do something to open their eyes. Everything that we've been talking about for all these past six or seven weeks, they needed God to open their eyes. Everybody, this is exactly what we need today. I don't wanna come up here and just give you a good speech. I want the spirit of God to work in all of us to open our eyes to what's happening in the world around us and beyond that to help motivate us by his spirit to move with compassion into action. But in order for that to happen, it has to be a work of the spirit. We're no different than anybody else. It's really easy for us to get absorbed and we need God to open our eyes. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Ephesians chapter 1, 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is our prayer today. Because it's only when God does this, when he opens up our eyes, that we realize that we are the ones, that we are the revolutionary agents, that we are the agent of change in the culture that we live in. And everybody, one person can make a major difference. One person can make an incredible difference in the world. So where is it? Where is the church? Where is the voice of the church? Where is the salt? Where is the light that the scripture talks about? Matthew 5, 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. In fact, let's do the cheesy preacher thing and I just want you to do it with me. I want you to say, I am the salt of the earth. I am the salt of the earth. That was good practice. Now say it like you believe it. I am the salt of the earth. I am the salt of the I believed it that time. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled by men. You are the light of the world. Say it, I am the light of the world. 
A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do you see what he's saying? You're it. Nobody else is coming. You're the agent of change in the world. We can't get out of it. It's the reason why you're here. You're here to be salt in the earth. You're here to be light to the world. That's your purpose on the earth. One more quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He said, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. One person can make a difference. One person with the spirit of God in them can make a major difference. You know some of the stories. Mother Teresa and all that she has done with the poor. You've read about William Wilberforce. You've read about him and all of his work to help abolish the British slave trade. You know about Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. But what happens is we think, I, I, I don't know that I could do it. Look, I, I think that the church must focus in on those types of big issues in our world. But do you know how it usually happens? It doesn't happen just like that. You don't just end up on the world stage. It usually happens with a next door neighbor. It usually starts with somebody who's in line with you at the grocery store. It might start with your own family. Or it might start with a kid in a classroom. In fact, I want to tell you one of those stories about a little kid. His name was Teddy Stollard. I want to read the story to you about Teddy. Teddy Stollard, he's certainly qualified as one of the least. Disinterested in school, musty, wrinkled clothes, hair never combed, one of those kids with a, a deadpan face an expressionless, glassy, unfocused stare. And when, when Miss Thompson spoke to Teddy, he always answered in monosyllables, unattractive, unmotivated, and distant. He was just plain hard to like. Even though his teacher said she loved everyone in her class the same, down inside, she wasn't being completely truthful. Whenever she marked Teddy's papers, she got a certain perverse pleasure out of putting X's next to the wrong answers. And when she put the F's at the top of the paper, she always did it with flair. She should have known better. She had Teddy's records and she knew more about him than she wanted to admit because his records read, first grade, Teddy shows promise with his work and attitude, but poor home situation. Second grade, Teddy could do better. Mother is seriously ill. He receives little help at home. Third grade, Teddy is a good boy, but too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Teddy's very slow, but well-behaved. His father shows no interest. Well, Christmas came and the boys and girls in Miss Thompson's class brought her Christmas presents. They piled their presents on her desk and crowded around to watch her open them. Among the presents on her desk was one from Teddy Stollard. She was surprised that he'd brought her a gift. Teddy's gift was wrapped in brown paper and was held together with scotch tape and on the paper were written the simple words, for Miss Thompson, from Teddy. When she opened the present, out fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a bottle of inexpensive perfume. The other boys and girls, they, they began to giggle and smirk, but Miss Thompson at least had enough sense to silence them by immediately putting on the bracelet and dabbing some perfume on her wrist. And holding her wrist up for the other children to smell, she said, doesn't it smell lovely? 
And the children, taking their cue from the teacher, they readily agreed with oohs and ahs. At the end of the day, when school was over and the other children had left, Teddy, he lingered behind. He slowly came over to her desk and said softly, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother. And her bracelet looks real pretty on you too. I'm glad you like my presents. When Teddy left, Miss Thompson got on her knees and asked God to forgive her. The next day when the children came to school, they were welcomed by a new teacher. Miss Thompson had become a different person. She was no longer just a teacher. She had become an agent of God. She was now a person committed to loving her children and doing things for them that would live on after her. She helped all the children, but especially the slow ones, and especially Teddy Stollard. By the end of the year, Teddy showed dramatic improvement. He'd caught up with most of the students and was even ahead of some. The school year ended and students moved on to different classes. Miss Thompson didn't hear from Teddy for a long time, but then one day she received a note that read, Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I'll be graduating second in my class. Four years later, another note came. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I'll be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. The university hasn't been easy, but I liked it. And four years later, dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I wanted you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You were the only family I have. Dad died last year. Miss Thompson went to that wedding. She sat where Teddy's mother would have been. And she deserved to be there. She had done something for Teddy that he could never forget. And most often it looks just like that for us. It's not taking a grand step onto the world stage. It's just seeing what's happening in front of you. It's like Mother Teresa said. She said, if you can't feed 100 people, feed just one. So I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want to ask you the question. Are you being silent? Is your voice being heard in the world that you live in? Are you just being absorbed into the culture that you live in? Are, are you really being like Miss Thompson, an agent of change? Who's the Teddy Stollard around you? You could be a Miss Thompson. I mean, think about what happens here. She takes a step outside of herself, impacts the life of a young boy who grows up to impact life after life, after life, after life as a doctor. This is the power that all of us have. But it doesn't reside with us. It resides with the power of the Spirit of God in us. We said at the beginning of this series and all through it, that this is going to be a journey for us. And it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not. Today wasn't especially easy. But it is where God is calling us to. And today I want you to pray, God, would you open my eyes? Would you help me to see what you're doing in the world? And would you allow me to partner with you in it? in making things right, in bringing the gospel to bear.